Hi, and welcome to this podcast, which includes highlights from the recently published special edition of Healthcare Quarterly on patient and caregiver partnership and health research. The special edition was developed through a partnership between the Ontario Strategy for Patient-Oriented Research Support Unit, known as OSU, and Longwoods Publishing. I'm Anne Wojtek, and I was the guest editor for this publication, and I'm very pleased to also be the monitor, moderator for this podcast. And I'm joined today by Carrie Koleski, who's one of the authors in this special edition. And we're going to start by asking Carrie to introduce yourself and tell us about your connection to this work. Great. Thank you so much, Anne. And I have to say, it's been such an honor to be part of this work and to be in this space as a researcher. So how I describe myself is someone who, when I'm looking for answers on how to improve our health system, I look to people who use the health system, so patients, their families, and care providers. So the heart of what I do is working in partnership with people who use the system, ask them what's working well, what's not working well, and what we can do to improve things. And so this particular project that I'll be speaking about today was looking at one of health systems burning issues, uh, which I'll get into a bit later, and worked in partnership with patients and families to understand what do we need to do to create a better experience. And so that's why I describe myself as someone who, who does research on burning issues with with patients and families. And also I teach at the university on ways that uh, students and people in our health system could better engage with community patients and families in their research. Well, great. Well, why don't we dive into your burning issue? Because one of the first questions we had is what attracted you to apply for one of the OSU Empower Awards? Yeah, so, you know, in, in healthcare, there's lots of things that we're trying to fix. And one of them that's been plaguing the system for decades is referred to as alternate level of care. And so that's when people are, are delayed in getting access to the care that they need. So there's a bunch of people in the hospital at any given time that have completed their um, healthcare treatments and they're ready to leave the hospital. So they're ready to go and get home care services or they're waiting for long term care, but they're stuck. So they're essentially stuck in a hospital bed, waiting for that next setting to be available, but it's just not quite available at the time that they need. And so there's a lot of people on any given day in Ontario and across Canada that find themselves in that situation. And what tends to happen is because healthcare providers are so busy uh, working with patients that need immediate care, that there's less time for patients that are waiting to transition outside of, out, out of the hospital back into the community. So what, what I've learned in my research is that families are having a really hard time during that transition. Patients are having a really hard time, as, as well as providers are really um, struggling trying to find that next care setting for patients and families. And so there, there was an opportunity to work in partnership with patients, families, and providers to further understand that problem, but also to co-design an intervention that would support people while they're waiting. So they're not just languishing in a hospital bed, not getting the services that they need. And so we were able to uh, co-develop um, through the OSU funding. I was able to connect with patients and families um, all across Ontario, um, along with care providers to further understand what the problems were and to put together an intervention that would improve the care that they received, as well as the communication amongst the care team and with patients and families during that waiting period. 
Thanks. Can you tell us, because uh, there might be others out there who are interested in the next set of OSU grants and awards. So tell us from your perspective, what it was like and, and what your experience was in working on the grant, you know, the different stages, there was the award process, the policy brief. Uh, yeah, just, what, I, what I really appreciate about the OSU grant is it's intentional funding to help further drive forward the research that you're doing in partnership with patients and families. So what tends to happen is you get funding for a project, you have just enough time to build your team, collect the data and analyze the data. And then it sort of stops there. We write a, we write a paper and then it collects dust on a shelf. With the OSU funding, it really allowed us to push the dissemination of that knowledge further, but in really creative ways. So we were able to, uh, the advisory council that I work with of patients and families, they designed a website from this OSU uh, funding, which uh, profiled all of the work that they had done, key messages that they have for policymakers, for other patients and families, and for care providers. We have tools that we developed through the co-design work, um, including a communication guide that we're able to put on the website. We're able to put together a policy brief and other modes of, of dissemination that are far more creative than writing that you know, paper that ends up collecting dust. And we also have an opportunity to share the work um, through oral presentations. And we were able to do a couple of conferences with the um, OSU funding as well. And it's been really pivotal for the patient and family partners on the project just to have that opportunity to build connections together, but also share the work and feel like, okay, this work is actually getting out there in hopes that it will start to shift the system. So the OSU funding really helped us to kind of push beyond uh, the completion of the project to disseminate it widely and creatively. Thanks, Carrie. I know that you are very well known in the field of, of patient uh, engagement and, and co-design and partnership with patients and caregivers. Can you just describe a little bit more in your project how you went about engaging patients? Yeah, so first to kick off the project, we put together an advisory group of people that had experience with this delayed hospital discharge that I was describing. So family members and patients. And I worked with um, people that I knew in the healthcare system that were based in different sectors across the system. I had them help me find people who had this particular lived experience. And so we brought everyone together. Um, I had a couple of one-to-one -one meet and greets with patients and families to see if they'd be interested in the project. So I call those, it was just like a coffee chat. It was like going on a first date with someone to see if you wanna to work together. So there's a lot of parallels to relationships here. So I had some people you know, in the system refer patients and families to me. I also met them one-to-one -one and in small groups just to get to know each other and to see if we really wanted to move forward together. So that was a really important essential step is to see, do we have that right synergy together to do this work together? So are we feeling that we want to take those next steps? And so once that was established, we had a seven-person advisory group. And I mean, it's about two and a half, three years later, and we're still working together. But initially, when we first started to connect, that was a big question. It was, so how do we want to work together? Who wants to do what? What kind of skills do we want to build? And so it took us a bit of time to figure out um, what types of activities everyone would be involved in. And as it turned out, um, the advisory group didn't want to just advise the project. They wanted to be involved in the project. 
And so what ended up happening is they played that advisory role where we would meet monthly and talk about, you know, how to drive the project and how to set things up. But they were also involved in developing um, the data collection tools that we put together for the co-design sessions. And they also participated in the co-design sessions and then eventually co-led the co-design session. So it was a full succession of figuring out what do we want to do, advising the project, and then being involved and then co-leading different uh, parts of the project. Because essentially what we ended up doing was pulling together um, patients who have had that alternate level of care experience, family members, and then included advisory members and other people in the system, and care providers. And we got together to have um, what I call World Cafe discussion groups, where we dug into core questions related to what do we need to do to improve this healthcare problem? And then we, over time, started to develop this intervention, which included a core suite of services that people felt should be taking place in the hospital as people were waiting, in addition to a communication guide, which outlines what care providers could talk about with patients and families, as well as what patients and families can talk about with care providers to better understand their experience and plan for the future. So it was really neat to see how it iterated over time. And it reminded me in this kind of research, you can't go into prescriptive. You have to go in with a really open mind and kind of figure out together as a group in partnership with your patients and families, what do people want to learn about? How do they want to be involved? And then you need to be flexible to be able to allow people to shift gears as they need to throughout the project. So, you know, as researchers, we're trained to be super prescriptive, have everything outlined, have that sense of control over all the different elements of the project. But that is actually counter to the core principles of community patient and family engagement. You need to go in with that open mindset, that flexibility, the learning mindset, the adaptive mindset, and be willing to kind of disagree and kind of work through uh, next steps as a group. And so at the end of the day, I'd say that many of the advisory members were involved in really kind of all stages and it got messy at times. But at the end of the day, we, we figured out what it means to work together in a way that's that feels authentic. It feels comfortable. Um, we have a really good vibe within the group and we continue to meet and we're trying to figure out how to move this forward again towards implementation. I know it's second nature for you to work with patients this way uh, and to partner in this way, but it's still fairly new in research to think about you know, co-design and, and co-creation of research with patients and caregivers. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious as if you can kind of paint a picture for us about how you saw the value of uh, working with patient partners in this research. Like what, what do they bring to the project that you wouldn't otherwise have? So what, what patients and care partners really bring is they remind us what matters most to them. So as we're designing something and figuring out how to improve something um, in our system, in this case, in the healthcare system, they're a constant reminder of you know, what they need from the system to thrive and have a better experience. Also, there's a greater sense of accountability. I'd have to say as researchers, our biggest accountabilities that are thrown at us is to bring in a lot of grant money and publish a lot of papers. Like at the end of the day, the ivory tower is pointing us in that direction. Patients and families and communities remind us that we're doing this work to actually improve the system. They don't want people 
to have negative experiences the way that they have. You know, not that all their experiences are negative, but they're they're at the table because they want to make a difference. And they remind us as researchers that, oh, yeah, like it takes a while to make a difference. But if we're really in this together, it's not just about the papers. It's not just about the funding that's brought in. It's the value that's brought back to the system. And they constantly remind me of that, that, you know, they say, Carrie, like, when are things going to change? How can we push things further? How do we move this so we actually see and feel the changes in the system? And that's the hardest part. To that point, one of the biggest learnings I've had out of this project and other patient engagement projects is the importance of engaging decision makers and people who have the power to implement the changes that you're co-designing. Because it's great to have the patients, families, care providers at the table to further understand a problem and work together to build a solution. But if you don't have people at the table at some point who have also bought into this idea and have the power to implement it, it's going to get stalled. And in full transparency, that's what happened to us. We have this great idea. We're really excited. We've developed this intervention and now it's like, well, now what? How do we how do we now situate this in the system? And I have to say that now we're hearing a lot of um, resurgence around like ER problems, over people in hallways again. So this ALC issue is blown up again. So there is a window of opportunity in the system to kind of take this intervention and say, hey, like we have something that we think can help. Um, and so just my message to other researchers is to have that decision maker lens and involvement just as much as patients and caregivers are involved to ensure that your work could get eventually get implemented and taken up. I think that's actually really good advice. And I also like that comment you have about the, the tension between like tr the traditional ivy ivory tower requirements and pressures on researchers and how patients and caregivers kind of force researchers to have a real lens on what matters most in terms of actually transforming the health system. Can you uh, share a little bit about some of the challenges that you've run into in engaging patient partners in, in your work and, and also how you actually work through those challenges with them? Yeah, I think, you know, and, and to the earlier point to extend on it further, you know, there is a timing challenge that we have. So in research, you know, there's a certain number of steps we have to follow to launch a project. We have to go through ethics. We have to get all the approvals in place. Um, and then, you know, we, we all often have a million projects on the go at the same time. And so things don't move as quickly as we would like. And with patients and families, Rightly so. I think, you know, they're excited to get involved in the work. They want to see a difference and things don't move quickly enough and they get stalled and they get delayed and they don't always see the fruits of their labor. And I think that's that's really frustrating. So we've had a lot of conversations around like, what is the what is the end goal here? How do we work together and how do we figure out a way to loop back? Like, I think it's really important for researchers to loop back with their partners to say, this is where we're at. This is why things might not be moving as quickly, but let's think about a game plan to keep that momentum going. And I think that's a really important piece because I hear from a lot of patient and family partners in general that they get really involved in really exciting work, but they're not always clear 
what happened, like what happened with all of the ideas that I shared and why isn't anything happening in the system? So I think we need to have really good communication to talk about why and why not things are happening, um, but also work through those challenges and try not to lose momentum along the way. So I think we've definitely had a lot of discussions around what now, why is nothing happening? This work was really exciting. When are the changes going to happen? And the system is so complex that, as I mentioned, you need that window of opportunity along with that decision maker buy-in lined up with your idea ready to go and to push forward. So I think that's, that's probably one of the biggest challenges. And also throughout the pandemic, we decided to continue to meet virtually, but it was harder to engage um, patients who are still physically in the hospital. When we launched our project, we actually met uh, within a hospital and were able to pull in patients off the units to be involved in our work and be involved in our meetings because we were basically at their home at the time and it was much easier to engage. But for this particular population, um, we ended up engaging more with family members than with um, patients. And so that became a challenge just because of the nature of the pandemic and not being able to be in the hospital and so forth. That's great. The, the next question probably is a bit rhetorical and it was about, you know, does patient partnered research produce better evidence. I think you've made a strong case for why that is. Uh, is there anything you wanted to add to convince maybe other researchers to go this route or decision makers or to actually encourage patients and caregivers to become more involved? Yeah, that's a great question. I think of you know any complex issue that we're facing and trying to solve, it's like a puzzle. And people who bring different perspectives, whether it's patients or providers or caregivers, members of our community, decision makers, they're all a piece of that puzzle. And so if we don't engage with people who have that lived experience, we're missing a piece. We'll get some great insights from other stakeholders we're working with, but the patient perspective and the family perspective of that lived experience, that deep knowledge of experience is so critical for completing the puzzle, you know that we're that we're you know trying to complete together. So we can still create interesting evidence and get great perspectives without them, but it won't be complete. And so, and same to be said, you know, when I made a case for involving decision makers and people that have that authority to push through interventions, we can't miss that perspective either. So I think as we push forward with patient-oriented research, um, it's about engaging multiple perspectives, so multiple patients from different walks of life and backgrounds and experiences, as well as care partners, as well as community members, as well as decision makers, um, so we can fully understand a problem, but also learning to appreciate the different sources of knowledge that are that are coming to bear and acknowledging that all these sources of knowledge are valid. And I think that's a struggle sometimes. We have whole different power amongst our the different groups or the roles that we occupy, and we might not value different sources of knowledge the same way. So that's a mental barrier, too, that we need to get through, is to appreciate the knowledge, bring these different voices to the table to fully, to, to complete that puzzle in the best way we can. That's a great lead into the final question we have, and it's, it's kind of about where to from here. So what's your vision for the future of patient-partnered research? I would love for it just to become so normal that it's not even called patient-oriented research. It's just research that's done responsibly. It's just an automatic that, of course, on our teams and in the work that we do, that we're pulling in that perspective from the patients and from community members, from decision makers, from care providers, 
to fully understand um, a problem. And of course, you know, I speak to this for, as a qualitative researcher, researcher who does health services research. So, you know, we're really understanding relationships and health system quality challenges. And to do that, you do need multiple perspectives and multiple inputs into solving those challenges. So I would like for it to become the norm. I would like uh, it to become so embedded in our teaching um, in the university college teaching settings, as well as research settings, that it's just an automatic um, piece that, that shapes uh, research projects going forward. Well, thanks, Carrie, um, and really wanted to thank you for sharing your experience and your perspectives. Uh, you are a shining example of a leader in this area, and uh, your, your comments have inspired other researchers and patients and caregivers and hopefully decision makers and funders as well to actually help everybody kind of achieve the vision that you've laid out. So thank you so much. Uh, and uh, look forward to hearing more about the work that you're doing. Thank you, Anne. And I'm wondering if I can sneak in one quote just to cap things off. And I'm a really big fan um, of Adam Grant. He's a professor at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania and specializes in organizational psychology. And I'm going to share a quote because it really resonated with me because in doing engagement research, we're often thinking that we need to reach consensus on things. And, and in fact, he gives a different perspective. And, and he said, the goal of a great discussion isn't to land on the same page, it's to explore different views. Nods and smiles stroke your ego and close your mind. Thoughtful questions stoke your curiosity and stretch your thinking. Consensus makes you comfortable, dissent makes you smarter. So I think my final message is, let's get comfortable being uncomfortable and welcome more voices to the table. It's not about agreeing, it's about finding the sweet spot in this work and figuring out how to move forward together. So that just really, it got me thinking about that's a great message for the future of this work and how we need to think about um, building relationships and working together. So I'll leave it at that. <laughs>